We are in week three of our summer series called God Is. And uh, this is going to take us through the month of June and the month of July uh, and probably the first week of August, maybe the second week of August. We'll kind of see how it goes. Um, and we will spend all of those weeks talking about who God is and never begin to scratch the surface. Isn't that amazing? That, that song that we just sang, that idea that he's bigger than we, we thought he was. And the thing is, every time I learn something about God, I, all I'm... All I'm seeing clearer is how much I don't know about God. And, and, and the deeper I grow in the understanding of him, the more I realize I'm not that deep in my understanding of him. And, and, and even that our human relationships are that way, right? I had, a, I had a moment this week where I learned something about somebody that I thought I knew well. And I'm like, how did I never know that about you? Right? Because every bit of knowledge we have is limited, now, I know some of you think you know everything about everything, but for, for those of us who are aware, all of our knowledge about every topic is limited. Man, that sure is true about the God of all creation. And so we're trying to grow in our understanding of him. And the great thing about knowing who God is, is the first blank we filled in, is that God is knowable. He's not playing this celestial game of hide and seek with us. He's knowable. Matter of fact, he tells us if you're going to shine a light on anything, boast in anything, here, here's what's worth shining a light on, that you understand and know me. Not that you understand everything about me, but that you understand me. And we, we said that word understand literally just means to turn our attention towards and to think about. And that you know me, not that you know everything about me, but that you know me. God is knowable. And here's the thing. We believe there is a God. I don't believe you're an accident. I don't believe creation is an accident. I don't believe there's ever been an accident because I believe that there is a God. And if there's a God, wouldn't we want to know him? <laughs> like if our worldview is that there is a God, wouldn't we have a desire to grow in the knowledge of him? And, and he's knowable. The reason he's knowable is because he's chosen to offer us the revelation of God. He's chosen to reveal himself through his son, Jesus and through his word and the work of the Holy Spirit from his word. God's chosen to introduce us to who he is. And the audacity of the sermon, uh, of the series title, rather, of, of this whole series, God is blank. Only God, we said last week, has the authority to fill in the blank. Like only God has the right to tell us who he is. And by the way, not only it's only God that has the right or the authority, it's only God who has the ability because we're just guessing apart from him telling us who he is, right? God's revealed himself. Thank the Lord. Otherwise, we would be completely lost. This morning, we're going to begin a three-week series within the series. It's kind of like Inception. It's a dream within the dream. Nobody? Inception? Okay. Lance is with me. It's like a dream within a dream. <laughs> um, this is this morning is essentially going to be a really long introduction and just barely get into a really long sermon that for your sake, I split up into three weeks. <laughs> and, and we're going to start off this really long sermon right off the bat by going ahead and filling in the blank. God is Trinity. 
God is Trinity. And I didn't write God is a Trinity because there is no other. If we were going to put an article, it would have to be the. Because there is nothing else that is Trinity. Only God. And if you're like me, if we can be honest and real for a minute, if we can pretend like we're the family that we claim to be, when you see that, you probably didn't go, oh, good. Let's discuss the Trinity for three weeks. If we're honest, it's like, man, I love God, but the Trinity stuff is for people who have nothing else to do. Like people who are super bored and sit around in seminaries and argue about ridiculous things. They want to study the Trinity, right? The super nerdy, right? Um, super dorky, right? Everybody's looking at Nikki. Nikki, were you excited that we're talking about the Trinity? Yes, she, she did whatever that's called. Okay. So, yes, super nerdy theological. Yes, all of that. So, and here's what I want to push back on. And I hope somebody in this room will hear me, not just with your ears or your brain, but your heart right now. The doctrine of the Trinity is as relevant as God. <laughs> and I believe God's more relevant than any issue, topic, understanding in the universe. There's nothing more relevant than God. And the Trinity is not a part of God or, or an aspect of God. It is who he is. And to, to grow in our understanding of the implications of a triune God will change the way we worship and live. I promise, hang with me for the next three weeks. Because this is one sermon spread out over three Sundays. It's a three in one. Anybody? No? Not on purpose, totally on accident. Literally, the sermon was so long, I had to split it up into three and was like, oh, it's the Trinity sermon. Anyways, um, we're going to discuss the Trinity. And it matters because who our God is matters. And it doesn't belong in a classroom and it doesn't belong in academia. It is a glimpse into what makes God great. A lot of you probably heard of a guy named Christopher Hitchens. Uh, he was before his passing, a world-renowned atheist. As a matter of fact, uh, if you care about religious study stuff, he was one of the four horsemen of the new modern atheism. One of the most influential books that Christopher Hitchens wrote before his passing, the title of the book was God is Not Great. And he began to unpack why the idea of worshiping a, a sovereign ruling God was such terrible news. And I want you to listen to what he says. I, this is a little bit of a long quote, so hang with me. He says, if this God exists, I think it would be rather awful. If there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock, divine supervision of everything you did, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. And then he says this. It would be like living in North Korea. And here's what I would say to you for, for that view of God, for, for kitchens and for a whole wave of modern atheists. 
the idea that God is God, ruler, in charge, must in their minds mean that he's this dictator, this Hitler, Stalin, the big eye in the sky, big brother. And who in their right mind would ever want that kind of God to exist? I, and here's the thing. I agree with him 100%. I also reject that definition of God. And by the way, so does my God. <laughs> I have found that I think many atheists' problem is not so much with the existence of God, but with a broken definition of who he is. A broken understanding of who he is. And I believe there's healing found in the doctrine of the Trinity. Unlike any view or belief in any other God who's ever existed. That's why this matters. That's why this is relevant. A non-Trinity God is not great. We're going to talk about why for the next three weeks. I told you this is just a long introduction. We're not even halfway through the introduction yet. Hang with me. The triune God is not that God. So there's a guy named Michael Reeves. I'm going to mention him a lot over the next three weeks. Um, He said this. He said, many non-Christians description and definition of the God that they've rejected sounds more like Satan than the God of the Bible. This angry, petty, insecure, needy, trigger-happy, jaded, easily offended, unloving God that they've rejected, that being does exist in the Scripture. He's called the deceiver, the accuser, the devil. And here's the thing. If God is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then he can be all of those terrible things. That's why the doctrine of Trinity matters so much. Something's changed in the recent history of the church. The doctrine of Trinity used to be talked about every Sunday. Maybe you grew up in a faith tradition that that began or ended or maybe in the middle of the service somewhere either sang or recited the doxology? Any of you? Praise Father, Son, and Holy. The the Trinity was central in Christian worship for hundreds of years. And now we're like, uh, Sunday morning Christians in in the United States, they don't want to think. They just want to feel better. And we've stopped talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. And here's what's amazing. Michael Reeves says, is it just a coincidence that the advancement of atheism has paralleled the decline of teaching on a triune God? We've got a generation of people rejecting a false version of God. You're on, your, you're on the pathway to belief if you've rejected that God. <laughs> we want to spend the next three weeks diving into why his three-in-oneness matters so much. Why it's so central and crucial. And as a matter of fact, apart from the doctrine of the Trinity, we are not Christian. So if we do not believe in a Trinity God, or 
if we think that's boring or irrelevant, what I hope God will do in the next three weeks is do some renovation of that false belief. But to do renovation, you have to do demo. I've been so excited about this remodel project, you know, um, this to me, this messiness is the sign of progress. And I think we could stand as the body of Christ to take some steps forward right now. And I know it's just a building and ceiling tiles or whatever, but it's like, man, let's go. Right. I'm so excited about this. And there have been some things that as we've been doing them, Lance has said, well, I need to warn you, that's not going to be done for a few weeks. It's going to look bad. And every time he's warned me, I've said, thank God, slow the process down. Like, I think the American church could use a little mess. We could use a little inconvenience. I think it's thrilling. This is the sign of progress. So I guess my family has overheard me saying that like a stuck button. Because this past week, I got an interesting text from my middle son, who's helped make a mess around here. Uh, I was in Guatemala last week with a group of pastors. Uh, I got to help lead a trip, um, privileged to help lead a trip of pastors to kind of introduce them to the work of Mana Worldwide. It was great. While I was there, I kept getting texts from Lance, like, oh, look at this, look at this, look at this, you know. And then I kept nagging him while he's trying to be productive. And he's doing such an amazing job. And I'm like, how's it been? Any, any pictures? But I get this text from my middle son who's telling me about the day. And here were his words about this room and the foyer. It looks horrible, but in a good way. And I'm like, yes! Because you got to tear some stuff out if you're going to move forward. And here's the thing. If our, if our view of God is not fully formed that he is Trinity, we need to tear that view out. We need some chip gains, demo day, grab the sledgehammer. Or if our view is that the three-in-oneness of God is boring or academic or nerdy or irrelevant, that needs just as much sledgehammer taken to it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin this portion of the introduction... By defining what Trinity means. And I know for a lot of you, you might have learned this growing up. But for some of you, this might be new. So whether this is introductory or review, real quick definition. The word Trinity is the three-in-oneness of God. It is one God in three persons. (laughs) One God... In three persons. Not three expressions of God. Like God has these different personality types. And sometimes he's leaning more into his fatherhoodness. No, not not just different modes that he operates in. Three distinct persons. One God. Which makes absolutely no sense. How can you be three distinct and yet one? So maybe here's how you were taught about the Trinity growing up. And if you weren't, I'm going to give you four of, I think, the most common ways that the doctrine of the Trinity has been taught in the modern church. Real quick, at least in North America. 
The number one way that the doctrine of Trinity has often been taught, real quick, is this. You can't understand it. Just shut up and believe it. We've just said it's a mystery. Right? I shouldn't have said that mocking because some of you were like, that's literally what I was just thinking. <laughs> we use that phrase when it comes to a lot of stuff about God that we have to think hard about. Well, it's just a mystery, brother. Which really just means, can we move on to something that makes me feel better? And so for a lot of people, they've had questions about what it means. What's the implications of God being three in one? Oh, it's just a mystery. Let's move on. Or it's a mystery, but you better believe it. <laughs> Maybe the, 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 the second way that it's most commonly been taught, uh, that the legend is that St. Patrick went to Ireland. And he saw a three-leaf clover. He looked over the four-leaf clovers. Come on. Not even a chuckle. I'm looking over a four-leaf. Nothing? The word Trinity went on the screen and I've just lost the room. (laughs) They picked up a three-leaf clover and used that to teach the men and women and children of Ireland this is like God. It's one clover But it's like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The problem is, we believe there's three distinct separate persons. So the clover analogy isn't separate enough. It actually doesn't work. Maybe you heard number three, which is water. Water can exist as a liquid But if you freeze it, it becomes a solid. And if you heat it up enough, it becomes a vapor, just like God. Let's study the doctrine of the gassiness of God. (laughs) The problem is that's two separate. Because water cannot be liquid, solid, and vapor all at the same time. And fourthly, maybe you heard this analogy, and I think this is probably one of the most common ones. I know I heard it as a kid. Our God is like an egg. Anybody heard this before? Yeah? God the Father is like the shell. And God the Son is like the egg white. And then we are indwelt by the yoke of the Spirit. Right? And again, quoting the great Michael Reeves, he said, let us all bow before and worship the eggishness of our God. And here's the deal. I love some good scrambled eggs with some cheese in them, pepper jack cheese in it. That's great. But I don't think that's a picture of who God is. Because the shell is not the same as the yoke nor is the white. And so all of these analogies fall short. So maybe instead of making up illustrations, we should let God speak for himself. Grab your Bibles, if you would, please. We're finally starting to begin the next part of the introduction. Let's hold up our Bibles and let's say our creed together this morning before we dive in. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory 
and my joy. Amen. For those of you who have a good old paper Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 3 and stick a finger there and then flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Matthew chapter 3, put a finger there, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you're using an electronic device, we're going to start in Deuteronomy 6. Then we're going to scroll over to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at a couple other verses, but they'll just be on the screen. The main ones we're going to look at will be first in Deuteronomy 6 and then in Matthew chapter 3. While you're turning there or scrolling there, I want to say this. This is important for me to say, and, and I don't know if it will resonate with you or not, but this is just important for me to say out loud. I don't remember a time in my life that I did not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. I was raised in the church, so I was told as a young child, there's God the Father, there's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit. And as I learned the Bible as a child, and as I saw the stories of God, I saw the hands of all three at work. And so I just in faith accepted the doctrine of the Trinity since I was a child. So for my whole life... I remember believing, as long, as long as I can remember, I've believed in the Trinity, but it's only been in the last two years that I've delighted and rejoiced and celebrated the Trinity. Just in the last two years. And the reason I, I, I say this is I, I want to publicly give honor to a professor at Southwestern named Dr. John Mann. Uh, Deanna shouted out my favorite professor I've had in 70 whatever credit hours of study I've done over the years at Southwestern. I love this guy. He's a pastor west of the Metroplex. And that guy talked about the Trinity in a way that made me jealous. Made me lean in. Made me go, what is up with him? And so, thank you, Dr. Mann, if you're watching. I kind of hope you're not. That's really intimidating. He's a smart guy. And he had us read a book that I couldn't recommend more highly. It's called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, who I keep quoting. Dr. Michael Reeves is the renowned world theologian alive today on the doctrine of the Trinity. Delighting in the Trinity is a book that is not academic. It's easy to read and is extraordinary. So I couldn't recommend it more highly. In the last two years, I've grown to love the Trinity. Before we look into God's word, I want to say one more thing, and that is this. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. We've technically done this morning what I said we don't have the authority, the right, or the ability to do. We filled in the blank with our word. Because it's so hard to understand one God in three persons, we stuck a term to it or a word to it. So the term Trinity is not in the Bible, but the truth of the Trinity most certainly is. So if you're on your phone and you're, you're searching your app for the word Trinity in the Bible, you're not going to find it. So we're going to unpack a biblical definition this morning as we're paving the way towards the actual sermon where we're going to talk about why it matters so much. Helping to form our definition, we first look at Deuteronomy Chapter number six, verses four through seven, known as the Shema, the Hebrew word hear, the first word of this passage. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Say the word one. We believe in one true God. Amen. 
We believe we don't believe there's many gods. We don't believe there's many ways to God. We believe there's one true God. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. There's one true God. This passage is this foundational, formative passage of Scripture for the whole Jewish belief system. It's so important that when Jesus is asked, what's the most important command of God, he quotes this. And for us as a church, it's where we get all of our purpose statement, vision statement, and functional mission statements. It's from this passage of Scripture. It's that foundational. And it begins by saying, there's one God. Not just that he exists, but you shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them to your children. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So, what are we teaching our kids? We're teaching our kids what's on our heart. What's on our heart? That we love Yahweh with all of us. Who is Yahweh? He's one. He's one God. So the reason that that's really important and that I park there is a lot of other faith systems say that we believe there's more than one God. If If you want to nerd out about it, if you were to talk to an Islam, they would say you are polytheistic. Poly being many, theistic being God. They would say you have more than one God, and that's why you're an infidel. We are monotheistic, one God, and so are we. We believe there's only one God. We believe that God exists in three persons. Let's let Jesus talk about this to us a little bit more. Now we go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, we see this moment in the life of Jesus. He comes to John the baptizer. When Jesus was baptized... Immediately when he came up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, descending, y'all heard me say this before, like a dove. There wasn't a dove. There was no dove. Stop putting pictures of doves doves on church logos. There was no dove. He was just descending like a pigeon. And coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. In this moment, we see God the Son, Jesus, baptized. The Spirit of God descends on him, and then we have the voice of God. Straight up, James Earl Jones, I am your father. See what I did there? Okay. This is the best picture. Parents, if you want to know how to talk to your kids about the Trinity, it's this text. So what I want us to do is I want us to, it says all of this happened immediately, but I want us to pause the Holy Spirit in mid-flight. Ladies and gentlemen, we've begun our descent. Pause. I want us to pause the Holy Spirit somewhere between the Jordan River and the throne of God. So that we can see the distinctiveness of these three persons. We have Jesus being baptized. We have the spirit mid-flight. And then we have the voice of the Father 
coming from the heavens. Right? That is what, for over 1,700 years, the church has called the divine dance of the Trinity. Maybe you've never heard that phrase before. But that's what the church has called the relationship in the Trinity for close to 2,000 years. Since the 3rd century, they've called it the divine dance. This is the best picture where God shows us himself. We're also really used to this. We're so used to it that we might have forgotten that we're used to it because a lot of you did this. A lot of you did what Jesus did. You've been baptized. It's what Jesus commanded us to do before he left. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus tells us, go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name. And the fact that this does not seem weird to us is because I think we've gotten so common. This is not good grammar. Isn't it weird that it doesn't say names? The names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you're going to say three names, you should say names. Where's the S? Have you ever noticed that before? I've never noticed that before. I've been a Christian for like 700 years. That's what I feel like at the moment. And in the Greek language, the word name is singular. The single name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's who our God is. He's Trinity. I'm only going to give you one nugget for why that's such a big deal today. That's what it is. Let me tell you why it changes everything. I'm giving you one little nugget. I cannot wait until next Sunday morning to give you the next big honking nugget. Oh, I'm fired up. I'm fired up for next week. And the week after that, but really next week. Um, This morning, just one little nugget. Apart from understanding Trinity... We actually don't have a savior. We can't understand Jesus and how he came, why he came, or what he came to do if we don't understand his role in the dance. If we don't understand Trinity, we don't have a savior. Which is why every non-triune religion in the world has to earn their way and work their way to God. Apart from Trinity, there's no Savior. We're going to look at, at the end of the Gospel of John. One last verse and we're almost done. John tells us why he wrote everything he wrote. By the way, remember the the last verse of the Gospel of John, if you've ever read it? He's like, man, I got a lot more to tell you, but if I wrote all this down, even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So he picked what what he wrote real careful, right? Here's why he wrote what he wrote. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing you may have life in his name. We find life when we understand that Jesus has a father and he's a son and that he's 
the Christ. Christ meaning Messiah, meaning anointed one. Anointed by who? The Holy Spirit. That's the passage we just looked at. We find life when we know who Jesus is. And we don't really know Jesus if we don't understand that he's a son with a father and a spirit. And so what we're going to talk about for the next two weeks is not this weird, off-to-the-side, debated doctrine. It is debated a lot. Good people who have a lot of time on TV have this doctrine pretty messed up. And a lot of people talk about part of the Trinity a lot. People who are more like Reformed, more Calvinistic, they talk a lot about the Father. And then people who like the more miraculous gifts talk a whole lot about the Holy Spirit. Then all of us conservatives that are somewhere in between those, we talk about Jesus all the time. And the fact is we can't understand any of them without the other. Because that's who God is. And I want nothing more than for you to know your God in a deeper way. Because there's life in his name. There's life in him. And what we need is for him to heal our broken understanding of who he is. How in the world can one God be three persons? How does that make any sense? How is that possible? Because I believe he says so. (laughs) It's what he has chosen to reveal about himself. I want to end with this illustration. I want to talk about a Japanese form of art that I just learned about a couple days ago. And I'm curious if anybody else has ever heard of Kintsugi. And I might be saying that wrong. I'm not Japanese. I barely speak English. Kintsugi. Has anybody heard of this? Only a few of you. Okay. I thought it was going to be like, duh, we learned about that in kindergarten. Okay, good. That makes me feel better. I read this great book while I was in Guatemala with those pastors. Um, and in that book, the author, she, she talked about kintsugi. Kintsugi is a, is, a, is a Japanese form of art that's used with broken pottery. And the broken pottery is not thrown out and discarded. And it's not fixed in such a way that they try to hide the brokenness. It's a form of art where these, it's just, Amazing process. If you want to nerd out, Google how it's done. It's this intricate process where they fill the cracks of the broken pieces with gold dust infused lacquer, making that broken piece of trash incredibly valuable. It's really expensive and it takes a lot of time. And it's based on this old Japanese tradition that we want to celebrate the healing of brokenness, not hide it. Doesn't that sound just like our God? That he comes into our our broken areas of life and doesn't say, I can't believe this. Let's cover this up. We don't want anybody else to see this. He brings his healing and that becomes the most valuable parts of our story. I also believe that's what he wants to do with himself, with our view of him. Because all of us inherited a broken view of who he is. 
And I think if he'll fill those broken places with more of himself, we'll find life in his name. And so I'm asking, will you come on a two-week further journey into the rest of this sermon to look at the beauty of what it means that our God is three in one?